Hi, I'm Cassandra Siebels, the 2022-2023 president of the Junior League of Atlanta, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of JLA Inside Out, stories from inside and outside of the Junior League of Atlanta. As Vice President of Advocacy and Initiatives for this league year, I am pleased to moderate a panel with esteemed partners on the topic of generational poverty. The Junior League of Atlanta is committed to amplifying the advocacy efforts of our partner organizations in order to support the eradication of human trafficking, to promote high quality, affordable, accessible, early childhood education, and to improve intergenerational poverty. These are our three issue-based community impact areas that we remain committed to as an organization. I am pleased to be joined by three subject matter experts who have varied perspectives on early childhood education, public health, and homelessness and housing, and how these areas of support either amplify or ameliorate negative community conditions related to generational poverty. We have with us Mindy Benderman, who is the founding executive director of the Georgia Early Education Alliance for Ready Students, or GEARS, a JLA partner. Mindy came to GEARS from Voices for Georgia's Children, where she served as advocacy director from 2007 to 2010 and she has a very extensive career in advocacy in both Georgia and Maryland. We also have Katrina Dantism, the Director of Partnerships and Volunteer Services at the Atlanta Mission, which is a current placement of the Junior League of Atlanta. Prior to joining the Atlanta Mission, Katrina served as Senior Brand Marketing Associate for the American Red Cross within their national headquarters in Washington, D.C. And last but certainly not least, we have Cassandra Martin-Fraser, who is a health scientist and senior evaluator with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And she also serves as our incoming JLA Vice President of Membership. So if you don't know her already, you will soon. She also has worked as a health research analyst for Northrop Grumman, as well as for ICF, and has served as a program evaluator within the Georgia Department of Human Resources. I think I'd just like to start by asking each of you to share in your own words a little bit more about yourselves, as well as the mission and the work of the organization that you're representing. Um, so I am Katrina Dantism. Uh, I have had the honor and privilege of um, working for the Atlanta Mission for about four years. Um, Atlanta Mission exists to um, support those experiencing specifically um, specializing in chronic and long-term homelessness. Um, we have four locations in Atlanta, in Atlanta three in Metro Atlanta, two for women and children, one for men, and then we also have an addiction recovery facility for men in uh, Northeast Georgia. Uh, we've been around for almost 100 years, uh, was founded in 1938, and we are the largest and longest provider of homeless services in the city of Atlanta. I'm Mindy Benderman, the Executive Director of GEARS, the Georgia Early Education Alliance for Ready Students. We were founded in 2010. Um, to be a statewide organization that wants to create a movement to support high quality, accessible, affordable early education, early childhood health, and family well-being across the state of Georgia. We do that through working on policy change, through doing research and supporting innovative practices, 
and through collaborating and convening and helping the public understand the importance of the first five years of a child's life um, and all that that represents. So we are really proud to be a partner of the Junior League of Atlanta. We appreciate the work that you do and we value your voices so much. So I'm so glad to be here. Um, so I'm Cassandra martin Fraser. I'm the lead health scientist I'm within the Office of Health Equity at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And the CDC's primary mission is really to protect the public's health. And we do this by advancing science and health equity. So there's a variety of activities that we conduct, but it really boils down to um, detecting and responding to new and emerging health threats, such as COVID-19, promoting health, healthy behaviors and safe behaviors, communities and environments, um, developing and training our public health workforce, and really just putting science, data, and technology into um, practice in order to protect our health. Thank you so much to each of you. Mindy, I think we'll start with you. How would you describe Gears' role in supporting whole families who are experiencing generational poverty? So in other words, how does high quality, affordable, accessible childcare impact families experiencing generational poverty? First, let's talk for a moment about families in the city of Atlanta. What we know is that children, families and children, so what we know is that children under five um, in the city of Atlanta experience poverty at a very high rate. As a matter of fact, almost 50% of our children um, under five in the city of Atlanta um, are in families that are economically disadvantaged. And one in every four um, children in the city of Atlanta would be considered to be living actually in poverty. Those are, those are high numbers and they are much higher than the rest of the state. We also know that to ensure that families can, um, that the majority of those children are in families where either both of their parents or their only parent is um, in, somehow in the workforce or doing something outside of the home. So we know that those children um, don't necessarily get access to high quality early education experiences that take into account the tremendous growth in their brains and their brain development that happens in those first five years. There's a window of time in the first five years of a child's life where they, um, their brains are growing, the synaptic connections um, of their brain are connecting, and that is really what forms the foundation of everything that comes after in a child's life. Not just their education outcomes, but even their health outcomes. We know that Children who don't have access to um, high quality relationships, language, um, who might experience toxic stress in those early years are more likely to develop heart conditions, more likely to develop diabetes. So there are lots of reasons that kids in those first five years need access to these high quality environments. Their parents so need their children to be in those environments, not just because it's great for the kids, but also so that parents can go to work. Childcare, especially for infants and toddlers, can cost almost 40% of uh, the income of a family who's experiencing low, uh, experiencing poverty, 40%. As a matter of fact, childcare in the city of Atlanta costs as much or more than in-state college tuition at a time when parents usually are just in the, just starting their own work experience, so they can't necessarily afford um, that. So basically it's a two-generation strategy. 
We're preparing children to be successful in their lives. We're also helping their families support and sustain their own families. Both of those issues are so important, and we can talk a little more about two-generation strategies later on, but that's just some of the reasons that high-quality, affordable, accessible childcare is important. Um, for both for families experiencing poverty. Wonderful, thank you, um, Cassandra. You have a unique perspective as a JLA leader on our incoming board, as an early childhood advocate, and as a professional focusing on health equity at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. What should our members know in particular about how our mutual spaces and efforts align between education, housing, and public health? Yes, yeah, so, so there's a, a great um, deal of alignment. And I just kind of want to share a little bit of a personal um, stories. Years ago, I actually shifted my focus within a junior league to early childhood education. And one of the reasons why I did that was because of my son's own health and the limited access to early um, quality early childhood education. So by, um, I wanted, I have my own little personal mission of wanting to really advocate and um, Junior League provide a, a nice platform for that to advocate for um, early childhood education more broadly, but also for myself to learn more as a parent about um, you know, access to quality education, what it means to have access, and then learning about the limited access and that I certainly wasn't alone. Um, so it's definitely alignment there and thinking about sort of like the health of my child and how that impacted his ability to um, receive a quality education. We're still sort of struggling with that even now. Um, but from a public health perspective, um, education and housing are uh, what we call social determinants of health. And um, that those are non-medical factors that influence our, our health outcomes. So think about where we live, work, age, um, where we're born. All of these factors play into our health and well-being. Um, also, environmental factors, um, you know, economic um, factors, um, our social norms. All of these are sort of forces that influence our ability to um, optimal health. So um, just kind of thinking about like housing, I know we haven't gotten into that yet, but again, it, it all intersects. You know, affordable housing limits our housing choices. By limiting our housing choices, you know, we have to, um, there's concern for quality of housing. The quality of housing affects um, our health. If you think about low-income um, housing, where there might be some issues with mold, there might be some issues with pest control, rodents, it might be situated in an area of high um, pollution. All of this actually impacts asthma rates. So, you know, we're, we're not thinking only about individual health, we're thinking about all the different factors that when we're walking around every single day, we're encountering, and that's all um, affecting our ability to um, optimal health. Thank you, Cassandra. Appreciate it. And I appreciate you mentioning the opportunity that you've had as a Junior League member to grow as an early childhood education advocate. Um, and I also appreciate you bringing up the nexus between public health and housing. And so with that, I'd love to turn to Katrina. 
Do you mind telling us a little bit more about the experience and experiences that your clients have had as they come into your doors? Um, Tell us a little bit more about the services that they received when they enter um, the Atlanta Missions for programs. How long do they stay with you? What is the composition of the family structure? Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit more. Sure. So we really see um, a couple of different profiles of individuals experiencing homelessness coming through our doors, kind of on two different sides of the scale. One may be the person who's experiencing um, very temporary, maybe episodic um, homelessness that they're experiencing. And so they're needing support um, in our emergency shelters. And so our emergency shelters would be focused on uh, providing support for the first 30 days that somebody um, is needing sheltering. Um, We have a full program of services though. Atlanta Mission has done the research, has asked our clients, and has really come to understand that at the same time that there are a lot of systemic reasons as to why somebody may be experiencing homelessness, they are often coupled with high trauma as well as a lack of relationships. So we refer to that as relational poverty. Uh, That would be the lack of having um, trusted, healthy community and relationships around you. Um, And so if somebody is ready to address really the root causes of uh, the homelessness that they're experiencing, we offer um, a robust wraparound supportive services uh, for those individuals um, to be able to live with us full time Um, All of our clients reside with us full-time, and they would be able to go through that uh, full offering of program. It's really trying to address both sets of needs, Um, somebody needing temporary shelter, that they can have that, or maybe they actually need more robust services, but their readiness level um, is not there yet. And so we offer that emergency sheltering. That's about 40% of our population that we support, and the other 60% are in the full program of services. So it's 30 days for emergency sheltering, and it can be anywhere from six months to 18 months um, for somebody to go through the full program of services. Uh, That is because we take a more individualized approach to address um, whether they have core trauma, compounded trauma, which would be like having really high ACE score, really um, systemic, robust amounts of trauma that they've experienced in their lives, or if they're needing addiction recovery support. Um, And so that's where it lends a little bit longer um, on the back end. Specifically for women is typically uh, longer that they would be in the shelter. I'm interested in learning a little bit more about the mental health supports that you might provide to your clientele. Do you mind speaking to that? Yeah, absolutely. So we um, have some supportive services in-house as well as we partner with some different community partners. Mercy Care, Capin are two of our uh, biggest healthcare providers. But our clients, when they are going through the full program of services, uh, they do have mandatory um, counseling and therapy and group sessions that they would be going through as part of those wraparound services. So in the same time that they're going through vocational services and they're going to be going through some interpersonal classes and team building, um, parenting classes if that's applicable, they would also be going through these different counseling sessions. Um, They would also be receiving support from admission uh, if they needed additional support with receiving prescription medication, psychiatric evaluations, etc. Somebody does have to, unfortunately, uh, just the complexity of uh, opening mental health and homelessness is quite a box to unpack, but um, somebody would need to be stable, at least medically stable, uh, to be able to reside with us uh, just for the safety of the community. Thank you for that perspective across the board. Uh, My next question is for each of our panelists. I think I'll 
tee it over to um, Mindy. Um, I know that uh, you mentioned wanting to talk about two-gen strategies and work, and I know that also Gears is doing a little bit of direct service here in the Atlanta community too. So um, if you don't mind, I'll start with you. What recent efforts have you participated in that have been particularly impactful in assisting families move forward towards economic prosperity and good health? So as I said, we work on, throughout the state on advocacy, um, public awareness building, and um, research. But in addition to that, we have some focused work in the city of Atlanta that we call PACT, Promise All Atlanta Children Thrive. We started that work in 2018 when we brought together a group of 25 leaders in the city of Atlanta. And that they ranged from philanthropists to business leaders to parents. Um, we had the pre-K teacher of the year. We had Head Start providers. And we really sought to answer the question of what could a focused effort in the city of Atlanta look like that would focus on our youngest children to make Atlanta the very best place to raise a child and to close these opportunity gaps that we have. This group came up after meeting for six months um, for many, many hours. They came up with a plan and a strategy on investing in a public-private partnership in the city of Atlanta focused on our youngest learners and specifically around access to childcare, access to wraparound health services, and supports for families. We call that group um, Promise All Atlanta Children Thrive, or PACT. We're making like a pinky promise with, the, with um, families in the city of Atlanta. And it's a collective impact effort. Um, we were really thrilled when Mayor Andre Dickens on 404 day last year, April 4th, um, in his very first State of the City address, shared his commitment to this work at PACT and did us one better and um, gave $5 million, pledged $5 million for the PACT effort. Um, and he challenged Atlanta Public Schools to give another $5 million and the private sector to give 10 to support improving the quality of childcare through repair and renovation grants to childcare programs in the city of Atlanta, business coaching for those programs, and literacy training for their teachers to support scholarships so that at some point, hopefully, when we really can expand these scholarships, no family in the city of Atlanta will have to spend more than 10% of their income on childcare. And then finally, to support the workforce, the childcare workforce. Our teachers um, are stressed, they're tired, and they make an average of $12 an hour to teach our youngest kids. Um, and so they're leaving the profession, and we simply can't afford to lose high-quality teachers. And so stabilizing the workforce is the third leg of this three-legged stool that the mayor um, supported as, as part of the PAC strategies. We're really thrilled about this work because, again, this is focused work with partners, including the Junior League of Atlanta, and others throughout the city who are helping make this a reality. We're almost finished raising the funds. We're about to close out this campaign. We're hopeful we'll close that out within the next month to six weeks. We have these partners who are already doing transformative work in Atlanta. 
And um, we're, we're, we're so excited about the possibility of what this is going this three-year plan is going to mean for children and their families um, as, as we look at investing in family well-being and in child well-being in the city of Atlanta. We also just want to bring this up because Junior League has been such a great partner. Lead something we call the Mayor's Summer Reading Club. It's, and it's, it lev we're about to celebrate our 11th summer in the city of Atlanta. We have about 40 partners, again, including the Junior League, who read um, to children and plan these incredible programs for children in the city of Atlanta to push in language and learning and to model for parents what that looks like through summer months. Um, by the end of the summer, we will have given about 200,000 books to children in the city of Atlanta. We're focused on those who are experiencing poverty or in schools that with low third grade reading levels. But again, this isn't just a book giveaway. This is really a program that models best literacy practices and helps to close in, in the summer learning slide. So again, these are efforts that will really impact, we believe, um, children's readiness for kindergarten and parents' engagement. That's really wonderful. And I will share just a very brief um, experience of participating as a volunteer with the Mayor's Summer Reading Club. Um, and in particular, I found it meaningful to talk with community leaders on the west side of Atlanta about the when the first day of kindergarten and when the first day of school was. And so uh, spreading that awareness truly is an example of how it's more than just a book giveaway, for sure. So thank you very much, Mindy. All right, Katrina, Cassandra, is there a story you could share with us or a particular programmatic example that you'd like to share with us about an impactful way that your organization has helped families move towards economic mobility or more positive health outcomes? So um, when it comes to individuals experiencing homelessness, um, some of that may mean removing the barriers of access to additional resources. Um, and so Atlanta Mission recently um, has done this in a couple of different scales. One is um, adding an addiction recovery uh, program for women to be able to um, receive those services on our campuses. There is not enough support for addiction recovery. Um, just for women in general, it's really focused on a male thing. So we added that program service. Um, another example of, um, I believe Mindy mentioned it, about um, teenage boys are sometimes used uh, inadvertently as a barrier to access to resources. And so when Atlanta Mission opened its most recent shelter, uh, Restoration House, it was an additional 102 beds of housing in the city. Um, we structured that facility to be able to allow youth of all ages to be able to stay with their families. Um, it does add an additional security, logistics, cost, um, and but that was something that we felt the need to be able to keep more families of a larger size intact. Um, boys up to the age of, um, including 17, are able to be housed there. And then we've also expanded our um, transitional housing. We've had it for a long time for men. We've also added transitional housing for women women and children, um, helping bridge some of that financial and economic impact uh, to be able to offer those that have uh, graduated our program successfully um, an additional period of time where they are able to continue to work, be job ready, save the funds, and then be uh, equipped more sustainably uh, when they move out of our facility. So. Thank you. As a mother myself, I can't imagine having one of my children taken from me at a certain age if I had already experienced this trauma of being unhoused. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate learning about the work of Restoration House. 
Cassandra? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm so inspired by these stories as well. And I, I think from, you know, I work in, for the federal government and, you know, they say it's the ivory tower. And unfortunately, there's some truth to that um, because we don't really work at the community level on a one-to-one, but we do support community engagement and true community engagement. You know, um, right now, um, our office is um, supporting um, local health departments, um, state health departments, community-based organizations, um, to really get into the community and engage in the conversation and the collaboration um, and support community-led, community-driven solutions to problems that are identified within the community. And so that's really exciting work because, you know, there's a lot of breaking down bureaucracy, there's a lot of infrastructure work that has to happen, policy changes that need to happen at an organizational level, and supporting and really trying to understand how to better assist communities so GEARS and Atlanta Mission can do the work that they do so well. Um, that's really a, a sort of a culture change that we're, we're going through. Um, and so that's what we're working on primarily. Um, some other um, aspects as well, such as like hiring within the community to serve for people to serve as community health workers. And what's important about that is thinking about trust. You know, one thing that community members know other community members, right? If you're in the community, you're the one that can speak to other individuals about their own health, um, but also be able to liaise with the health departments and the other organizations that are supporting these initiatives that are occurring. So being able to hire people from within the community to serve as advocates, to be able to provide the education um, is is really important, is a, a very important shift that's happening. Um, and the other thing that I'll just mention too is the ability to collect community level data. In order to make informed decisions, we need the data that's going to tell us what's happening. I think the education sector, sector does a little bit better job, I would say. Um, I know I've looked at um, a lot of the education level data, but we're really moving towards being able to collect the data and not just you know, um, quantitative data, but storytelling, narratives, understanding context, understanding history, um, understanding relationships, um, all of that informing our ability to create programs that actually will work within those communities. So that, you know, I don't have a a one-to-one story, but I just wanted to say that, you know, there is an effort to sort of break down um, the barriers to be able to better support organizations such as yours. I would just add, I, I, while it may not be one-to-one, it's, it's so important because when an organization like the CDC steps in and says, no, homelessness and generational poverty, these are health issues too, it really helps give us a platform to be able to say, this isn't about whatever socioeconomic thing is being politicized at the time, it's getting to health, it's getting to relational poverty, it's getting to the full comprehensive set of services. We um, have a great quote that has been said around the office is that um, homelessness exists at the intersection of broken systems. Mm -hmm. 
And so it's so helpful the more systems that are raising the hand to say, this part is broken and we're all interconnected because it takes all of us to be able to amplify it. So you may not have a front row seat, but you make our jobs easier every single day by you guys also doing all the research and contributions that you guys make too. So That's so very well said. I want to make sure that I remember that correctly is homelessness is at the nexus of broken systems. Yes, exists at the intersection of broken systems. Intersection of broken systems. Thank you for sharing that. And I agree wholeheartedly. Um, In working for a state government agency, I also recognize how important it is to actually get out of those walls that you are situated in in your day-to-day and listen to the communities that you're serving. So I appreciate that. I think that one of the things that we've focused on, especially in the last few years, is family voice, Mm -hmm. making sure that we're not speaking for families, but that we're instead lifting their voices up so that authentically they can tell their own stories. We just, just like JLA, had your great day at the Capitol last week. Um, Earlier in February, we have what we call Strolling Thunder, where we bring families to the Capitol with their babies to learn how to tell their stories and then connect them with their legislators. We don't presuppose what might be important to them, but we really help them identify their priorities and meet with their legislators and ensure that the babies are in the room so legislators can see that. And we found that it's so effective for advocacy, but even more than that, so important for families. Kind of, I think that they need to be able to tell their story in their word words and know that people are listening and um, if nothing else like COVID I think really amplified um, the need for that even more. That is a wonderful segue Mindy. Um, I was hoping to ask um, in terms of empowering the advocate a little bit about how um, we can be strong advocates um, currently with um, legislation um, that um, that you're following. So the question that I have for you, Mindy, is what bills are you currently tracking or what budgetary items are you pushing for consideration for in the next upcoming fiscal year and why? So I'm terrible at bill numbers, so I, I'm <laughs> going to look at my phone for a moment while I do this, and I'm going to try to cover some of the issues that we all talked about today. Um, we're in the middle of the General Assembly. Well, we're towards the last quarter of the General Assembly um, in Georgia under the Gold Dome. Uh, my fellow advocates could tell you exactly what day it is, but again, I'm really bad at my numbers, so I, I don't know exactly what day it is either. But the legislative session ends um, on March 29th. And so for a bill to pass, and it must be passed both chambers, either the House and the Senate, and be signed by the governor. So I'm going to share with you kind of where we are right now with some legislation. First, we're watching House Bill 129. That bill would extend TANF benefits, which is basically welfare benefits, to pregnant women who don't already have another child. And it gives um, incremental increases for women who give birth while on TANF. That bill has passed the House and the Senate and is going to the governor for his signature. That's an amazing bill. We were so excited about that when we talk about um, generational poverty. We also know, and we talked about the challenges with housing. We know that in Georgia, um, there, Georgia has very weak 
laws around tenants' rights. And so there is a bill, House Bill 404, that improves the rights of tenants and supports housing stability and environmental health. Um, it was passed with some amendments to make it a little stronger in the House. There's still maybe some changes that need to take place. It is now going to move to the Senate, it would need to pass the Senate. And then again, if it's amended at all, it has to go back to the House for concurrence before being signed by um, the, the governor. Senate Bill 61 removes the end date on the Family Care Act, which allows employees to use five days of their own earned sick leave, so it's only if they're already earning sick leave, but it would use it to care for other immediate family members and not just themselves. We know that, fam, um, that families, um, particularly those in smaller organizations or um, in not necessarily professional careers, don't always um, get sick leave earn sick leave and when they do often it can just be used for themselves we've heard heartbreaking stories over the years so the family leave act which passed five years ago it was an important step to at least help some families and it needs to be extended or it will sunset so this bill does that we're watching some mental health bills as well we've talked about mental health a bit um, House Bill 520 improves access to mental health services. It builds upon the bill that was um, the health parity, the mental health parity bill that was passed last year. Um, but there are some great things that it would do for children and families. One is that it would add family therapy codes to the Medicaid manual, meaning that um, you could bill for some of those family therapy codes. Um, it includes um, caregivers and your family of origin and therapeutic foster care services, which again is really important for families. And it recognizes that because mental health is shaped by circumstances, it would allow Medi Medicaid funds to support things like nutrition and employment training and housing, all those things again that families experiencing stress, particularly mental health stress, um, might need. We're also looking at some budget items. The biggest budget item, and if I can leave you guys with anything today, one thing that we're really working on is increasing our, the budget, the state portion of the budget for our child and parent services program, our CAPS program, which provides scholarships to Georgia's low-income, hard-working families. Again, remember I told you that childcare can cost up to 40% of a low a family um, budget, especially those who are experiencing low income. And we need to increase the um, state's ability to provide these scholarships um, at a rate that actually helps pay for high-quality care. And so we're asking for $20 million. It's a very big ask in terms of what we've gotten in the past. The House did not include that in their budget. The budget is now in the Senate, and we need the Senate to put those dollars in. And so we need you to call your senators. We need you to write your senators. You can write them an email. You can write them a handwritten letters are better talking about the importance of this program before they pass out the budget. Um, there's also some other budget items, but I'm gonna end there by saying we're kind of at this criti critical stage. There's a lot you can do to help these bills that need the other chamber or this budget ask. And um, again, we appreciate your advocacy. We had a Twitter storm today on the CAPS budget and I saw some junior league members help amplify that. So it's pretty, been pretty exciting. Thank you so much, Mindy. And I will um, 
take a shameless opportunity to plug our own Junior League of Atlanta Advocacy and Action newsletter. If you're interested in learning more about some of the pending legislation that uh, Mindy described, I encourage you to email us to opt in to that newsletter. And that email address is advocacy at jlatlanta.org. And so we do have just a couple quick questions um, for our panelists for whomever wants to respond as this, uh, they're a little bit nuanced. Um, but before I do that, I want to say a just sincere word of thanks to each of you for being with us. Thank you for taking the time to share your perspectives, um, to educate our members on um, the issue of generational poverty. So our first question of two is, if you could eradicate or mitigate homelessness today, how? What's the first action step you would take? If you pick one thing, it's having resources and having more resources. Ending homelessness is not a magical fairy wand to be able to wave and everything's magically better. You know, we, we said it's at, the, it's at the intersection of broken systems. So there is not just one thing that can be done. There is not one genie wish that can make it all a little bit better. It's not just, oh, we need more housing or, or we just need more affordable housing or we just need more shelter beds or we just need more jobs. or we just, it, It's all of it and it's healthcare and it's early childhood education and it's literacy and 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 so really it's um if it's one thing it's the the city being more aware the community being more aware i mean we have the support of the mayor's office but i'm talking about the people of the city um to be able to bridge some of these gaps just as the difference you guys are making by coming and serving um is exactly making those types of impact uh but we need more of it and all of us do it's not just atlanta mission it's all nonprofits need more volunteers uh need more donors need more resources um to be able to continue to make more of a difference so it's a really Thank big you. wand really big wand <laughs> yes well, thank you. Thank you very much. Do either of you want to respond? I think the only thing I'll add is just thinking about it from a systems change. I think more effort addressing root causes. Yeah. Um, thank you. You know, we're looking at it sort of upstream. What's actually um, contributing to um, unhoused individuals um, and putting the resource toward it to uh, mitigate it at that level. Last question. Um, it's also kind of a, a Big question. So uh, please just respond to the, the part that you would like to. Um, what does success look like in your work? And how is it measured short and long term? So I'll start. I think success, well, we have a lot of aspects to our work, but in the early childhood um, field, I would say success looks like, um, first of all, children being born at a healthy um, weight and a healthy gestational age gestational age is that the right thing to say um, and their mothers remaining healthy um, through their pregnancy it, but it is also about those families um, having the resources the support the health care that they need actually five percent of our children under age five still don't have health care in the city of Atlanta those are important issues um, and then it's about ensuring that every family who wants to send their child to a high quality early education um, program can access one. It's transportation, that's affordability, that's a slot, a, you know, not a waiting list, and afford it. And that every childcare program 
in the city of Atlanta and actually the state of Georgia is high quality, right? So the parents, just like when you go to a doctor, worry that they're board certified, um, the parents have that kind of sense of that system works for me and I can um, make choices that are best for my child without necessarily worrying that there's going to be a trained teacher. There's just going to be one. Our teachers are, are going to be trained and high paid. I mean, if I have that big one, those are the things that they, and that parents that choose to stay home with their child for whatever reason also have the support and the social capital, the wraparound services that they need to be the best parent they can be and ensure that their children also get um, the enrichment that they need. So, um, again, big one. But. <laughs> Um, we grapple with this every day. <laughs> what does it look like? Um, the one thing I'll mention, I didn't mention this before, but um, I don't know if how many people are aware, but one of the national public health objectives is reducing of people living in poverty. So just making that connection that public health is focusing on mitigating and addressing poverty. As it relates to the work that, that I do, empowering enabling our health departments um, to be able to do the work well, to work within the communities, like I mentioned before, supporting them in that, in that work. And in the course of um, what CDC can do is put forth those best practices, use the data, make that data available, um, ensuring that there are frameworks and scaffolding in place to better, again, support um, the ones that are actually doing the work on the ground. So, and that's a lot too. <laughs> it's, um, again, it's very systems level, but that's what success will look like. I would say for us, um, so we have the literal success metrics of somebody ending homelessness, somebody having their job retained for one year after they've moved out. Um, but we, um, those are, ending homelessness is a massive problem to to support someone through and and so we're you know trying to you know how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time and so the thing that every day we see success with is um, when our kids come in um, and they're first going through the program we ask them if you could have three wishes what would they be and when the kids first come in they are always saying things like I wish my mom would get a job I wish I could have my own room I wish um, I could see my dad. I wish mom would stop crying at night. When we can get the children to dream child dreams again, uh, when the children then say, oh, I have a dream of being able to be an archaeologist, or I have a dream of being able to go to college, when they have child-sized dreams again, those are the wins that we give ourselves every single day, because it's going to be fewer and farther between that we see the whole big cycle come through. If y'all are okay with it, I'm going to let that be the final word. <laughs> so it was very powerful. I want to thank each of you again for your time being with us today. Thank you for listening to this episode of JLA Inside Out. If you have feedback, thoughts, or questions, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at insideout at jlatlanta.org.